0: Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. This is Holland Henderson, financial advisor with Allen & Company, and this is the Risk and Reward Podcast. Today I have a very special guest, very exciting, uh, Mr. Bryant Black, who is the new head of school at Lakeland Christian School. So, Bryant, even though I just said that, would you uh, tell us who you are and what you do?
1: Well, thanks. Uh, Yeah, it's really good to be here today. I I am the head of school at Lakeland Christian School as of June 1st, i you know, very honored to follow uh, Dr. Mike Sly, who had been a part of LCS for 51 years, and so I appreciated when he when he departed. He said he was going to take all of his shoes with him, <laughs> and uh, I asked him to leave a few because uh, Dr. Sly is just an incredible leader. I grew up actually in North Carolina, Raleigh, uh, and uh, was thinking about this. We've we've been in uh, in Polk County. We were in Winter Haven and just moved to Lakeland. Now headed into our third year, but 49 of the last 55 years, I was in North Carolina and Tennessee. Mm. Uh, went to school at Bandy and our kids all went to, to Tennessee. Uh, but
0: uh, well, you got to keep it in the southeastern conference. Oh, I know. But... <laughs> well, really, and, and
1: just uh, thrilled to be down here in Lakeland. It's been a
0: it's been a great experience. Well, we're happy to have you, uh, just as an added member of the community. So, what kind of brought you into education? You, I know. I know you personally. So, having a background in the military, how did you get from where you where you started to where you're at today?
1: Yeah, really, it actually started in college. Uh, I spent a couple of years working in Young Life. You're familiar with Young Life Ministries. Uh, I did Urban Young Life, and so I worked with kids that lived in a in a really depressed community, and uh, and did a lot of tutoring. Actually, you know, part of that is just how do you support. The kids you're serving, mm. so I ended up doing, uh, spending quite a bit of time tutoring kids in uh, a host of subjects, and uh, really enjoyed that process. In the military, uh, I served in surface warfare on a on a guided missile frigate, and uh, relatively small ship, so you have a you wear a lot of hats. Mm. And one of my hats was the training officer. So everything on board the ship related to curriculum, instruction, training in a sense, came under, uh, under my kind of responsibility. And so as I neared the end of my, my commitment uh, in the Navy, you know, as I'm thinking back on that experience, uh, that which I loved the most was actually training young men and young women. And uh, so I combined that. I loved working young life. I loved spending time with high school kids, middle school students, and thought, well, I want to pursue
0: education before you got out of the military, did you have time to think about that? Where, I mean, you seem like a very just a analytical person where you're thinking of, through processes. So were you thinking about that trajectory before you even left?
1: I was actually before I entered the Navy. And so even you know leaving Vanderbilt, I thought graduate school is in my future in education potentially. So I actually maintained residency in North Carolina, which is somewhat ironic because I paid income tax. I ended up getting stationed in Jacksonville, Florida at Mayport. You know, could have bypassed state income tax. But I did that to maintain residency because I thought for sure I would head to Chapel Hill, hmm. you know, once I got out of the Navy. That changed for me. And this, getting back to, to answer your question, a good friend of mine was a resident director at Covenant College up in, uh, in Chattanooga up on Lookout Mountain. And he sent me a, a text called A Biblical Yardstick for Teaching that wasn't published. It had been written by one of the professors. And it was so compelling that I, I literally, I'm reading it you know, at, at, out at sea and thought, this is incredible. I want to go spend time with these professors. Mm. And so that led uh, my wife and I to, to Chattanooga, and we spent ended up spending 27 years in Chattanooga.
0: That's incredible. So, you know, the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is that education just really is a, a pivotal part. I mean, when I think about it from a financial planning perspective, it's something that comes up all the time, either A – we're paying off debt, right, from our, our, from our education, or, you know, we're setting up something for our children or we're setting up something for our grandchildren or how do we create, um, create an education funding plan generationally? Then you look at it from the political side and it just seems like everyone is talking about education from every single way and everyone has an opinion about it. So how do you, stepping into such a large role, start to consider all of these things from a community aspect, from a student aspect, from a employee aspect?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's challenging, you know, and, it, and it's charged. I mean, it's, you know, a, a regular occurrence that there is something uh, that is in the, the state or national uh, conversation regarding education. And often it reaches down into the classroom. You know, it's, it's a curricular question. It's a book that we're reading. And there are, you know, there's there's a great uh, there's very strong opinions, and I think too uh, uh, we live in a in a time when there's pretty significant fear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, centered around our children and their future. Uh, so that creates a, a really dynamic, challenging kind of.
0: Do you feel like there's more of a, more of a weight to raise children than there ever has been? I mean, is, would that be an accurate statement? Because we don't really depend on children to take up our livelihood from a farming aspect true that's right but there seems to be a lot of weight with the way you do medicine the way you do education Mm -hmm. the way you do discipline all of that stuff
1: the former president of covenant college uh at one point he said bryant he said "Um, you know for a thousand years uh your inheritance what you left to your children was land Mm -hmm. and and that was that was the transfer of wealth he said today it's education holy smokes and I thought, okay, that's, that's profound. Yeah, you know, And so, for example, when you're talking about financial planning, that was where he was in life. He's planning for the education of his grandchildren. You know, so the inheritance, what I want to leave my children is a great education because we live in an information age. You know, we live in a time where education, uh, it's interesting, it's twofold. Uh, to some degree, we look at education and say it's lost its value. We graduate from colleges and universities with tremendous debt. Yeah, you know, to what end? What's the job market? At the same time, we live in an age of disinformation, mm-hmm. so the ability to develop discernment and actually try to, to arrive at some semblance of the truth is incredibly challenging and requires a person to be very well educated. And even in that, we think of education generally as content. I think it's important that we think of education as process as well. Okay. So, the process of analysis. Yeah. You know, the process of of synthesis. So, how do I take what appears to be disparate, and bring it together, perhaps to create a, a meaningful solution to a problem that we see right here in Lakeland, yeah. for example. So there's, there are really important processes that have to be a part of, of the education of a child. Uh, so I appreciate it. You know, partly things are changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we saw that this past year with, with the introduction of AI. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and just the, the speed with which AI is is impacting what we do in a school is just incredible. So the question then, you know, I, I wrestle with is what then is good education? I had a person tell me at one point, well, because of Google, we just need to teach students how to Google it. Okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I want my students to actually create the content that someone else is Googling. Absolutely. You know, so you know, so that's that's you know, kind of at a macro level how I think about those questions and the ability to learn, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to, to read uh, narrative, to interpret that, to analyze that narrative is going to be critical to answering the kinds of questions you were just asking or the topics about financial planning. Yeah. Uh, about politics, you know, about the war that's erupted in the middle
0: East. Yeah. How do I make sense of it? Was that the role of the college prior? I mean, in years past, that was more of the role of the college to create the processes for weighing information where K through 12, you know, was more of the learning how to learn. Would, uh, would that be an accurate I assessment? So. I think so. And then it, now, has it just backfilled into every single grade of you have to weigh these things? No, I think you're right. And, and actually had a,
1: a conversation recently with a teacher who felt pressed by content. And I said, remember, process is content. And yeah. the kids aren't going to remember very much of what they learned content-wise in ninth grade. But they will remember how to write a paper or how to analyze an article that you've given them to read. They may not remember the content of the article, but the process that you're teaching them is really critical.
0: I mean, I even hear my kids come home from you know, just either you know, being with their students or seeing something on TV, and they will speak from a place of confidence and truth. And so, I mean, you're fighting information coming from them, right, whenever they're just out and about. Does that make sense? There's so much information. There's so much ability to learn something.
1: There is. Yeah, I mean, we have an overload of information.
0: Yeah. You know, we
1: see it. I mean, you know, the, the, we have sophisticated computers in our hands. Yeah. If you think about the capacity of the technology just 20 years ago, you know, what, what you would have had to have had as a, in terms of technology to have what you hold in your hand and, and it's access to information such that our kids are overloaded. Yeah. So even how do I even begin to write a paper, a research paper when I have a thousand sources at my fingertips? You yeah, know, it's, it's actually a real challenge. Uh, I think getting back to your question though about the college scenario, you know, if you, if you were to look at a historical model, colleges had a humanities core yeah. that really was a core education regarding people and relationships and basic systems. How do I understand economics? How do I understand politics? How do I make sense of religion? And so this core education, I think was really important to informing the way we see the world, the way we react to problems in the world. Mm -hmm. Today, I think we are moving at a rapid pace towards a transactional understanding of education. So the courses that I take, if they don't lead to an immediate outcome, which tends to be economic, then I don't see the value in those in those courses, and so it's not uncommon for universities now to shrink their humanities programs, to reduce the departments, the size of departments, history, English, uh, you know, even the social sciences, because they don't lead to you know the outcome of that education is not a specific job. Holy smokes! And so we we are we just don't value that education, and I appreciate our movement towards the idea that of self-actualization in the sense that, you know, let's let that child figure out who they are and, and and then design their own education. But there's some presumption in that a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 17-year-old actually
0: knows what they need to know to well, be well-educated. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back with Beyond Dollars and Cents with my guest, Bryant Black, head of school at Lakeland Christian. We were talking about just the transactional nature of, or where the transactional nature of education is going towards the college system. So how do we, in my mind, I think that there could potentially be a lot of negatives and some positives with that, right? Um, I think that, yes, we have to go for jobs, but at the same time, there's an educational piece that you can backfill that's not necessarily uh, job-related, that still builds into a person's life from an education sense. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I, I don't know how to really appropriately ask the question. What w- let me ask it a different way. What would be the pros and cons of a transactional system?
1: Right, trans- well, one, I, we have, we're, we're being forced, in a sense, into a transactional way of thinking because of the cost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's
1: become exorbitant, right? So if I'm going to, uh, you know, we made decisions for our, helped our children make decisions about college that centered around how much debt they would incur. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, debt is a, almost a form of, I mean, it's just bondage, it can be. 100%. You know. So there's a, that, that makes a it, it is a, it is a pragmatic, necessary question that we have to ask uh, because of, of what that means long-term uh, in terms of that. The, but the, I think the question though is, what is the purpose of education, right? Yeah. So if we step back a second, is the purpose of education transformation, or is it really a means to an economic end, or is there a, a, a bigger picture?
0: Are yeah, and that's, and that's kind of where I was going was the wholeness of the student. Right. Right, because education is, yeah, there's a lot of things that build into my job of what I do that makes me better. But at the same time, there's a lot of education that pours over into my marriage, into my you know, child, my parenting of my children, my friendships, all of that stuff. And just understanding and processing information, I would mm-hmm. think that if we only were – and I get it, too, from a cost perspective, that it becomes – that's just the knee-jerk reaction that it has to be transactional. What am I getting so that I can take care of this thing you're strapping to me?
1: Absolutely. One of the things I appreciate, though, that gets lost you – know, the military. So my father-in-law is a retired uh, admiral. He uh, was in charge of the Pacific Air Forces for the Navy in and, and his last command. And so he's paying close attention to the, in a sense, the new pilots, the pipeline. And one of the things he commented on that was so interesting is that the Navy had moved in the 90s towards really pursuing pilots that were trained in math and science. So you need to be an engineer. And what they found is that the absence of a humanities education, the consequences were that they were not as well trained to be leaders of men and women. And so they moved back from that and said, actually, humanities education is really critical to our officer corps, to our, you know, the, the pilots that are coming in that eventually are going to be, uh, you know, squadron commanders. You know, they're going to be leaders. Yeah. And so I thought that was a really interesting piece because I think what, when I speak about humanities education, it's not, I don't intend for that to be exclusive. No. Or to say that's, that's where you find transformation, but it is going to equip a person to communicate. You know, so if we think about the workforce and how quickly the dynamics of the content are shifting, again, it comes, you know, I, I find, you know, do you have the ability to communicate effectively? Do you know how to listen well? Do you know how to process information? Do you know how to problem solve? Uh, are you able to pull in a, a, a general understanding of economics into a complex problem? Because there's an economic aspect to that problem. Or are you limited because of the limits of your education? And it, it's a, it's a. I think it's a challenge, even as I look at hiring cycles, uh, you know, in secondary and 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 down into elementary education, but particularly in secondary programs, I actually see this move away from this kind of education, because teachers are graduating and being certified to teach, and they actually don't have majors in the disciplines. Wow. So increasingly, you know, you're not seeing. A history major who then gets a master's of teaching, so they really know the, their content, their discipline, and have been equipped uh, for for teaching as an occupation. Uh, you know, not again, unlike what you would expect in, in, in the field of medicine. Sure, right. There's four four years of med school. You are just it's just content, content, content. Yeah. Uh, before you move into patient co- care. Yeah, residency and so forth, and and put
0: that into practice. So how do, how do you because now you are the person that is head of all of the employees, right, and the teachers, how do you take someone and help them not speak from a, pl- a place of expertise only, but also learning, uh, t- teaching them or allowing them to come alongside the students and break down the processes to show the learning dynamics?
1: Sure. You know, that's a, it's a really important question we ask in, uh, in our interviews, and that is what is your view of the learner? so conceptually how do you see a child yeah and is that child really in a in effect a computer to be programmed right which would lead to a a classroom environment that's very it's it's what we would describe as direct instruction monologue in a sense Uh, that child is more of an object and I need to you know there needs to be this great deal of information that I pass to this child and they memorize that information and that's how they demonstrate that they actually have the information that's not really learning Mm-hmm. as much as that is memorizing. And so the question then is, what is the nature of a child by design? And so one of the things I love about Lakeland Christian School is this fundamental belief that every child is an image bearer, the imago Deo of God. And so we consider what are the, what are the characteristics of God that are a part of a child? And I, I think you'll see this too. It's not necessarily something that, that you might say that Christians have a monopoly on because uh, if you're in the in humanism. Mm -hmm. secular humanism, we're going to arrive at a lot of the same answers, that a child is creative by nature, that a child uh, is rational, that a child desires to be in relationship. They're social by nature. And so I would contend that the optimum classroom embraces what it means to be human, in a sense, what are those characteristics? And so to neglect the, the reality that a child is social by nature, such that when they're in a classroom and there isn't anything social, there's no relationship, it's very much that monologue
0: that I was describing, is reductionistic. I mean, is, is, so is it true that you would be attacking, not attacking, but you would be teaching to their head, their heart, and their hands? Absolutely. You know, even as we think about different models of education, you know, from Montessori
1: to traditional to classical, you know, we can kind of become somewhat siloed and say, well, you know, I want to champion my model. Mm-hmm. But I think what you'd find is that each model, in a sense, taps into that reality to, to an extent, right? So I love the fact that the classical model understands that children are sponges, you know, in, in, in that first stage. I think what they describe as the grammar stage. Mm-hmm. Incredible capacity to, in a sense, retain information. And then they're moving to a model that says, now what do we do with the information? Mm-hmm. Which is great. The Montessori program that understands that children are incredibly creative, you know, their, the, the imagination and just give them space to explore, you know, with curiosity is, is tremendous. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about some traditional models, I'll, I'll simply say a transformational Christian view is the idea of application. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do I actually put this into practice to a purpose uh, that, is, that transcends myself? Right? So there's something greater in the community of Lakeland that we want to be a part of, that we want to engage that is is good for Lakeland. It's good for the people in Lakeland uh, as a reflection of of an education that says, let's use a cliche, let's make the world a better place.
0: Yeah. So how do, how do you, if you are a parent, a new parent, how are you making decisions? What's the best way to make decisions on, on school of where your children should go? Because you do have classical, Montessori, traditional, I mean, public, private, I mean, homeschool. There's a lot of opportunities out there. Well, partly, you know, how, uh, parents
1: know their children
0: mm-hmm.
1: better than anyone else does. Mm. And so where, even as a child is, is growing up, they're two, three, four years old, where do you see them thriving? Mm-hmm. Now, we considered homeschooling our oldest son, but we recognized that he was incredibly social. And if he were not in a social environment, that he would die on the vine. Mm. You know, so he needed to be in that larger community, you know, school community. And yet our younger son needed to you know, we had him uh, in a homeschool environment for a season uh, because uh, the contact with people and the expectations fostered acute anxiety. Mm. So that's kind of specific to my, you know, our circumstances, but really it is, it's understanding your child in a sense, what makes them tick and then considering models, you know, that align to that. And, And that's an instructional piece. The other question is that school also has a curriculum. Yeah. And what is the curriculum teaching? How is it shaping my child? Do I agree with, with what you might describe as a conceptual framework, a worldview, that is is going to be implanted in a sense? It's going to be cultivated in my son or
0: daughter. Yeah, because you can't really fight against that. Yeah, they're they're,
1: you know they're in that school environment anywhere from six to eight hours a day, and if they're involved in athletics or anything co curricular, that could be a ten hour day. Yeah, that they're
0: under the care of other people. Mm -hmm. It's a it's it's a it is a weighty position that you hold. So let's go ahead and take our next break, and we'll be right back. And we're back with Bryant Black, um, new head of school at Lakeland Christian. I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Maybe it's because of the season of life that I'm in with three small children and just watching them grow and the differences that they, that they have. And I feel like education is kind of taken, in, in, my, in my view, watching my children versus what I experienced. I'm not saying what I experienced was poor. Um, but it seems more dynamic now, right? There's more of a focus on STEM and STEAM. And I I don't know how many more acronyms there there are, Um, but also allowing the child to play curiosity, allowing there to be more opportunity for failure, because then once they fail, they can, you know, how do you regain? I had a client tell me one time, her and her husband were golfing, and she was getting frustrated because it was just never ending in the fairway. And he said, listen, you know, we're paying to do this and you're not going to learn how to be a great golfer unless you can hit it from the rough. Right. And so it's a great word. It, it is. And so I, I, I've kind yeah. of put that in my heart and just watching my kids, like learning through processes. So what is your, what's your perspective on the way that education is moving in those directions?
1: I think that, uh, I was recently asked this question of, uh, what is, uh, what are the, the most important in a sense, character traits that, that, we hope to cultivate in our students and our children, you know, and this is in the context of, of a parent saying, I just want my kids to be happy. And my response was, well, I really want our kids to be resilient Yeah, because they're going to be unhappy at times. (laughs) They're just going to be, you know, they're going to fail. It's a question of when, not if, you know, in this world. And so really the question is what then do I do? How does a child respond to failure? You know and that failure in a school context can be I I got my first B or my first C. It's not even failure really, but but it feels as like failure because the child's never had that experience. Mm-hmm. So are we are we really teaching our our children to be resilient? You know, I think historically that's one of the the most important traits of a culture or a people. Are their resilience in the face of hardship, calamity, you know, war, uh, you know, these kinds of things that if we look at the historical record, it's a question of when they happen, not if.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to come back to this question because there's a couple of other things I want you to answer. But there, there is one that you're bringing to mind. You know, the, a school is a, a very different place because you have three different parties. You have the teacher, which is, you know, shares the role of an employee as well as the person in charge of the classroom. And then you have the parent who is ultimately providing the way for the child to go to school whether it doesn't matter which way you've chosen, they're either paying for it or taking the kid. There's a cost, an investment, if you will, you know, to raise that child. And then you have the child who is the client maybe if from a business perspective, but that person may or may not want to be there. Right. So how do you, you know, whenever you were talking about failure and you're talking about an experience with a child, how do you measure what that looks like? Does it make sense what I'm asking? It does. And it really ties into your earlier question about parents, you know, having a,
1: a plethora of options and having to make decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of which is to simply look at the data. And so, if a school won't actually share its data with you, when I say that, I mean, you know, their testing platform. So if that's NWA, it's SAT, it's ACT, it's pre. I mean, there's a there's a host of you know, or the the states. You know, if it's a public school, what are the state scores? Yeah, that should be readily accessible, and it will tell you something about the school. And you could simply look if you know if you do a little bit of digging, uh, you can actually identify the objectives uh, that are actually being tested. So if a school has strong test scores, you know the objectives because those are, are accessible. It's all public record. And that gives you at least some insight to how that school is performing against the expectations of what, you know, what they're expected to teach, you might say, uh, with respect to a child. But I, you know, in terms of the parties, I think increasingly we're seeing a fourth party, which is the politician. Oh, Right. And and I think that's problematic because generally policy is made when the politicians get involved at a state level or a federal level. And it's very difficult for someone at that level to understand what is the local picture. And so, you know, it, generally they're able to make sweeping changes, you might say. They are certainly make sweeping laws. And what's interesting even in that is in, in a single session, I, we could put a, a bill forward, have that enacted. It becomes active. At the end of that session, but it's got to be implemented. Yeah. Right. And the implementation in a school, even just one school, let alone Polk County school system or the state of Florida is incredibly complicated. Yeah. There's a lot of constituencies, for example, a lot of stakeholders, even. And and so I, I think that the degree to which education remains local is, is really helpful. I'm a big fan of site-based leadership, for example, in public schools principals need to be able to lead their faculty. Yeah. That means they need to be able to train them, hire them, if necessary place them on corrective action. They're there, they know their faculty, they're there every day. And they know their kids. And they know their kids. But if that's happening at only at a, a centralized office or worse yet at a state level, it's it's very difficult to know what actually is happening. It, it, and, and so that relationship with the parents in that context is critical. Um, you know, so do we create feedback loops, for example? You know, are parents being surveyed? Do do we have good feedback? You know that informs those kinds of decisions and what is happening in the school
0: yeah because I, I would imagine that just generating a state score would be limited you know especially whenever you start introducing learning disabilities like dyslexia or add or any of those i mean that's it just i look at my three children they learn all three different ways mm-hmm. um and it, it's just massively interesting so it, you know Understanding who their teacher is to help them and give them the best information of saying, "Hey, listen, you're the expert in this here's the information on my child, but then whenever you start zooming out and creating it from an, a macro level where it's sweeping changes that just that seems difficult
1: It is difficult you know that uh, I appreciate uh, our elementary school this year is, is meeting with parents each teacher is meeting with with uh, the child's parents, you know, that are in their homeroom, so to speak, mm-hmm. to review their, their testing, to actually do a deep dive into what does the testing show us? What do we see? And one of the things I think is helpful, even in that context, I encourage teachers, in a sense, is to state the facts. Don't draw conclusions. Yeah. Right? Because I, I could look on and say, well, this, this student performed poorly on the test. Well, they were lazy. They didn't study. Well, I, I really don't know that. Yeah. The fact is that they did perform poorly on the test. Right. So let's get the facts on the table and then do a careful analysis to understand why the student uh, wasn't successful on that particular assessment, for example, or is not experiencing success learning how to read. You know, if we want to take it down to elementary, they're struggling with their reading. Let's not draw conclusions, but let's 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 put as much data on the table, so to speak. Is that the best way to kind of fight contention between parents and teachers? It's certainly – it's a very helpful way. You know, for example, I, I'm not a fan of social media, <laughs> and, and certainly email is a poor way to communicate. Yeah, I, I encourage my teachers wars. actually if, – if I think, for example, if, uh, if, if your son or daughter is one of my students and I think a response to your email requires more than a short paragraph, I need to pick up the phone, call you, and set up a conference. Yeah. Uh, because it's, there's so much loss in email communication. And I have found that to be very effective. Also tone. Exactly. Tone, body language. There's so much that happens in in face-to-face communication. And ultimately, the student's going to be better served. There's a much greater likelihood we're going to arrive at a good solution uh, in in that context. You know, and we need to bring in, you know, if we have a person on campus that's skilled in in understanding learning disabilities, you know, that's well-trained as a special educator, they need to be involved in the process. They need to analyze the data. And, you know, so we don't rush to conclusions. We seek to really understand the child. Mm-hmm. And then we work to develop a plan based on what we've, you know, our, our level of understanding of that child. That's the ideal. And so it's, I don't think that's specific to a classical model or a Montessori model or a traditional no. model. That's human communication. Yeah, it's communication and really seeking to understand the child that's seated across from you.
0: Well, I think, I mean, th- th- isn't that the human element that we all fight for is to be understood yeah, and to be right. known? Yeah, that's exactly right. right. And, uh, but uh, you, you have a participant. The main participant in the education model would be someone who doesn't advocate for themselves, generally speaking. That's right. Or doesn't know how to. I mean, I look at how new to life my kids are, and they don't know. I mean, listen, we can't even figure out dinner half the time if there's a vote, right? Just got to call it in the air. Right.
1: You know, and I think, for example, I, I think that No Child Left Behind,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, its, it's, it's desire to, to raise accountability was healthy. But if we create a testing regimen for our schools that takes 15 days or 20 days out of instruction away from teachers. That's weighty. Yeah. There's a serious loss uh, to respond to a federal or state mandate for a certain testing regimen, for example.
0: Hmm. Let's go ahead and take our last break and we'll be right back. And we're back with Beyond Dollars and Cents and uh, with our guest, Bryant Black, uh, new head of school at Lakeland Christian School. So, Lots of information here. I mean, I feel like I'm getting an education in this. So what can parents do from from a learning perspective to build into their children? And let's just talk about K through 12. You know, what what are some – hit me with the highlights of what would be beneficial for elementary, middle, and a high school.
1: In elementary, read, read, and read some more. Mm. Read with your children and read everything. I mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the classics read the classics,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but literacy is, is everything. So think of it this way. If a student enters my sixth grade social studies class and they actually are on grade level from their reading stand, from a reading standpoint, I can teach them all the content they could ever imagine. It, it, it is so critical. And then second to that, or at least parallel to that, I would even say second is math. So if you think about language, the languages of learning, mm-hmm. Uh, math, math logic is critical in STEM, and reading is critical in the humanities. So in terms of of early childhood, those two are paramount.
0: So reading, just reading to them.
1: Reading to them, reading with them, encourage them to read. Have them follow along. Absolutely. Uh, My, uh, you know, I watched my wife do it to great effect.
0: Mm -hmm. I would, it was
1: so funny. I she would read until late into the night with our kids and I would have to go in and say, Hey, they've got to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> you, you know? Right. They need to go to sleep. Uh because they she loves to read and, and she just and so they read, you know, all the Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. I mean, they read everything C. S. Lewis wrote. They read I just Lord of the Rings, just yeah. you know, great literature
0: and is, and is lots of it. Part of that emulation, as much as it is Pronunciation and things like—I mean, what what is the big part of that? Is it showing the love for reading as well as it's showing the love for
1: reading? It's also, you know, part of that is, you know, certainly at times they were reading, you know, read along, so read out loud. I mean, it's just kind of I'm going to read for a time, but then it's context, right? Okay, did you understand what's happening in the story? Oh yeah, and so you're asking contextual questions, Mm -hmm. and then what you're doing is teaching reading comprehension. And and that's, it's just huge. And then with math, take every advantage you have to work with numbers. So for example, when you're in the kitchen, have your child with you working through recipes and you know with a third of a cup, a fourth of a cup, but just working with numbers. Uh, Have them actually create a word problem. So for example, in the financial world, Mm -hmm. get them started as soon as you can with uh, understanding interest. Oh, yeah. If you take out a loan for $1,000, and don't even necessarily get into APR, you know, just, you know,
0: and it's it's at 8%. Let's keep it simple. We're already doing the, the yield curve on bonds. You know, so okay, doing...
1: right. So, you know, what's 8% of $1,000? You know, or just if, if if you're going to invest in in this uh, mutual fund and its rate of return is, is 7.8% annually and you invest $2,000, uh, what would you expect to see? What could you withdraw a year from now? Mm-hmm. I, it just... It's, it's working with math, working with numbers, working with you know applications statistics uh, wherever you have the opportunity to do that uh, is is really critical along with that then is is to take kids out into the
0: field so are we still in elementary school? Well, It
1: could be elementary, but I think even you know it starts in elementary, but this would be true of of, of middle school as well, and that is experiences so uh, you know with even if it's uh And honestly, even if, but for example, what are your local restaurants that are owned and operated by people of different nationalities Mm -hmm. where they may hear a different language because the language spoken in this restaurant is Spanish or it's Farsi, you know, it's cultural engagement. So if you've got great markets over in Tampa, there's a great market. Take your kids to the market on a Saturday, just walk the market, you know, expose them to all kinds of foods. Okay, I've never heard of that kind of, of root or seed. Yeah. All right, let's – I mean, the beauty of having a cell phone, the upside, yeah, is that you can actually stand there and explore the seed. Oh, yeah. Find out where it's from and turn that into an incredible geography lesson.
0: I think Google might have been just created to answer five-year-old questions. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. So, so I just – that experience is, is incredibly valuable.
1: Travel, and it doesn't have to be across, you know, the Atlantic – It can be traveled to the next state. It can be traveled to a different geographic area. So we're going to go to the mountains and we're going to get into the Smokies Mm -hmm. on the AT. I mean, it's just as much experience and experience with different people and different languages and customs as, as possible. So what about,
0: what about middle school and high school?
1: Yeah. And then this is, I think, you know, as you move into middle school, particularly as you get into high school, this one is maybe dicey, uh, but allow your kids to take some risk Mm. in the sense, uh, you know, and I'm not saying you know to be foolish. Yeah. But but to start to venture out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think one of the things I've, that I encounter is, and I understand it, but it's in this gets back to resilience. Is we want to protect our children from suffering, we want to keep them safe, and we live in an age that has become incredibly unsafe. We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the consequence of which is we're a little bit, you know, like circle the wagons and keep them inside the wagons, uh, but they're going to step outside the wagon. Yeah. The second they set foot on the campus of FSU or University of Florida or uh, NYU or um, Palm Beach Atlantic, they're in a completely different world. Yeah. And so, how do we want to transition to that? You know, in a sense, what's the ramp uh, into that experience? Uh, and I think that's that's a really important way to think about high school.
0: Uh, that's incredible. So how? I mean, with your new role. Now, how do you, with everything we've talked about and so much more, how do you gauge success mm-hmm. where you're at and what you're going to, you know, five, ten years? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. One, one I think about community first. Mm-hmm. So what degree, to what degree are students engaged in the community? And this is this works all the way down, you know, to K-4 even, in the sense of what's happening on the playground. I know that sounds great, but just go watch a playground. How are the kids engaged with one another? You know, what does that look like? Uh, are, are kids attending your homecoming dances? So if we have 400 high school students and 375 are at the homecoming dance, we've got a real high level of morale. Yeah. And if they stay until that dance is over, that's an incredible sign of the health of the community, for example, within that school. And even getting back to your original question, those are the kinds of questions to ask. And if you want to, you know, so talk to me about student life. What what does the student life calendar look like in the life of a school for a sixth grader or for a fourth grader or for a a junior? Yeah, do people, do the children enjoy being there? Right. Go to the homecoming game, Mm -hmm. the football game, and see how dialed in the students are. And to some extent, you can learn something about the parents as well. Are they enthusiastic or are they all sitting just watching the game? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting, just a lot of observation uh, can be really, really telling. We pay attention to data. Uh, you know, data, sometimes we, you know, we, we, we put testing into this category that it's, it's evil, that we're just testing our children. Mm-hmm. But it also can be very formative. And what I mean by that is, is we're using our data to, to identify learning gaps. So a good testing regimen, we use what's called NWEA, and it's the Northwest Education Association testing platform. Uh, we, we get very clear data pertaining to reading, language, uh, arts, uh, mathematics that will take it down into specific objectives uh, in geometry, for example. And so we have the ability to identify this student is really struggling in this particular chapter of geometry within our curriculum.
0: So you can target it.
1: That's exactly. And so we created an advisory program, which allows us to do pull out services intervention using our data. Mm. And I think that's important as well. And parents can get access to that data, not specific to students, but certainly at a school level to see what, what they're doing and how they're using the data and what does it tell you about student performance?
0: Well, Brian, I, I am disappointed to say that this is the, the end of the podcast, and I always finish with two questions. So first question is, what are you listening to or reading right now?
1: I, I'm reading a, a book called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey, and it was one I've had on my shelves since the late 90s. Uh, if if any of your readers are familiar with the Person of Jesus study, mm-hmm. it's kind of a precursor to that, and it's it really takes you into the culture and time of Jesus, which really— it, it, it's incredible when you read the Sermon on the Mount and then you understand the broader context of what's happening in Galilee, what's happening with the Roman Empire, for example. It's It's been incredible. And then a, another book called The Six Secrets of Change by Michael Fullan. And uh, I've really appreciated it. Michael I, I Fullan is, is describing you know organizations, but he comes out of education. So he was an education leader in Toronto and Canada and, and led uh, that public school district through significant change. So it's it's been really informative thinking about you know, our school. What am I listening to? I love the blues, bluegrass, <laughs> folk music, you know, music that tells a story
0: uh, I love. Cool. And then last question is, what are you most encouraged uh, about in the world around you?
1: You know, it's interesting. We can we can look at uh, our political situation and, and, you know, think that's, we're in some dire straits. But we also have the highest level of political engagement that we've seen mm-hmm. in some time. Right? I grew up, I was born in 1968, grew up in the 70s and 80s, and there were periods where we were completely disengaged politically uh, during the stagnation of the 1970s, for example. So I think the question then is, how do we take all of this energy and passion and actually somehow come together at times Mm -hmm. to work towards solutions for a lot of complex problems that we see as a nation and and even internationally?
0: That's wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Again, uh, go visit uh, alleninvestments.com. There's a lot of great podcasts and blogs. But until next time, this is Holland Henderson. Have a wonderful day.
1: The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial LLC, LPL, Registered
0: Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL member FINRA SIPC.